Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. In 1970, <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> I've used 1970 before. I don't know. Neil Young released his third studio album after the Gold Rush. And I'm thinking about it. I actually heard the song coming to the show today. This is, I'm not making this up. It's true. It happened. And I'm saying to myself, oh, my God, over the last 48 hours, all I've heard about is this is the new gold rush. AI is the new gold rush. It's all happening right before our very eyes. Well, if you listen to the lyrics of Neil Young's song, strange things happen after the gold rush. By the way, you are listening to the On The Tape podcast. I am Guy Adami, Danny Moses, and Dan Nathan. In a few minutes, Cameron Dawson, CIO of New Edge Wealth will be joining us. I believe this is her third time on the podcast. Looking forward to that conversation. But what are your thoughts about my Neil Young? <laughs> By the way, love Neil Young from Canada. You cannot get Neil Young's work on the Spotify, unfortunately, Dan, because something happened. He got mad at somebody. I'm not really sure what happened. But that's neither I think here it was nor a, there. Was that like the Joe, Joe Rogan. Rogan? I think it was yeah. like the Joe Rogan stuff, and he just stuck it I out. I don't know. Yeah. Do you know, like Neil Young, when he started playing with Crosby, Stills, and Nash, mm-hmm. he was like 17 years old, wasn't he, or something like that? I don't. Was, bl- was, I don't know his age. I think. He, I think he's. Like, but he really yeah. rounded out that oh, group. Yeah, what him. are you kidding me? You don't start with an ode to Tina Turner, the queen of rock and roll. That's you true. walk in That's here true, with Neil Young. And I will say, I can't sing, I, I cannot imitate, because no one can imitate Tina Turner, but nor should you try. I will say her song, What's Love Got to Do With It? Yes. I will say, What's Price Got to that, Do With It? That's what I'm talking All right, about. What's Price Got to Do With It? And here we are. We're going to, let's go right into it, Dan. So you weren't here last week. Congratulations Thank on you. your Georgetown you graduation and getting a raise, which I think that happens when you, it's that's amazing. A, not a cheap school. None of them are. Okay. And I'm assuming no scholarship. Maybe no. Little, okay. So you make yeah. the right assumption. <laughs> All right. So I'm right. And there's right. no buy one, right. get one free at right. Georgia. It's not like Carvel exactly. on Wednesdays. Exactly. Wednesdays were Sundays at Carvel, but please. We talked last week. Dan and I had a conversation specifically about NVIDIA. And I said to Dan, similar to Netflix, I never would be short NVIDIA. I'm not not dancing, I'm but not long it, so I lose. I'm saying 
because the macro is so strong, and I'm scared that they're going to talk about this AI, and good for them they put up these numbers. If it goes from a $300 billion valuation to a $500 versus a $750 to a $950 billion valuation, what are we talking about here? And I'm not saying I go out in short, but I will say this. We've been drawing comparisons to various investment eras. This solidifies for me, and AI is here to stay, and it's great, and the Internet was here to stay in 1999, 2000. But I specifically remember, and I will never compare Lucent and Nortel to Microsoft and, and you know any of these other companies because those, those are real companies. Lucent and Nortel had debt on the balance sheet, all this stuff. But this whole fiber optic craze related to the Internet build-out, related to broadband, related to hosting, web hosting, all this stuff that went on, the macro was always right. It was the micro and how you added up these valuations of the company journal that made no sense. So – Yes, there's chip demand for AI. Is it going to be permanently $11 billion a quarter for NVIDIA? They got this incremental $4 billion from what people thought for the second quarter. Good for them, right? You know, they should get credit for that. But at some point, the, the big guys are ordering chips. They're going into the data centers. They're building up the stuff. It'll moderate. And then the reality will be, not for today, probably not for tomorrow, not for next week. Hold on. A lot of those companies, I'm not saying these companies are going to go bankrupt. What I'm saying is, I remember a, a report that if you took all the fiber optic cable that was, that was being talked about at the time, it would wrap around the earth 10 times, okay? That was kind of the denominator, so to speak, of the thing. So anyway, with that, it is what it is, and here we no, sit. No, but, but it's a great point, Danny, and I'll just say this. So so think about how, how this is just, it, it's hit these chip makers, the demand. It's hit the markets as far as valuations, okay? So you tell me if NVIDIA is the only one with his H100, what percent of that guidance that they just gave is double orders? For the, for the balance of the year. I mean, like, it's actually kind of dangerous. So when you think about it, here's a company that was doing, let's say, on average last year, $6.5 billion in revenue a quarter. Now they have this new – and there are parts of their business that are moderating, okay? So now it's data center. It's this, this advanced chip that they have that everybody wants, and they're, let, let's say, double, triple ordering. So at some point – 30% EPS growth and 30% uh, earnings growth, okay? So that's been ratcheted up here. But the stock right now, gaining $200 billion in market cap, is trading at the same valuation it was yesterday, now with these increases built into it. So what have they pulled forward? I mean, listen, I have been short. Now I've been doing it through puts, okay? And so good money after bad here. And so this is a bit of a, a trade, okay? And it's not going particularly well. But I just don't know how you can pile into this narrative right now given everything that we know about the economy here, the slowing, what seems to be slowing, if you're just looking at the Shanghai composite, what's going on in China right now, okay? So to me, I just don't, it doesn't seem like a good thing. I don't think I would say my pushback on that would be, this isn't about the economy. This is a blossoming area, right? It's a secular mm -hmm. growth area. So to be fair, to defend, but I think you make a great point. I'm now going to look at Taiwan Semi for what they're looking at, right, with their buildup, because obviously that's where these chips are coming from, from NVIDIA. So that stock's obviously up today, and it should be because we know demand. 12%. But keep an eye on what they're saying, because if they don't say, oh, we're, you know, shifting. And to Dan's point, I think it's a good one. My thing is on a $4 billion guide higher in revenue, you put a 50 multiple on that increase, right, and you gave it to them. I'm not saying the stock's going to go down tomorrow, but people, if you're chasing here in the name because you feel like I knew it, I, I'm going to get into it now, I'm buying it. That's not a good move. Could it go up another $100? Sure. Is it going to go to a trillion? Let's do that math because that's really important. $4 billion in the quarter, so expectations were 7 and the stock was trading 25 times sales. The guidance no, it, no, I know. That, that's yeah. what I'm saying for the guidance. So it was trading at 25 times sales. The stock's just gained $200 billion in market cap, and you already thought 25 times sales didn't make a whole heck of a lot and of it's, sense. And listen, you want to give them now $40 billion run rate for the year-ish? I mean, we can play the game if you want. 
at a billion dollars, here you go. I mean, you're 25 times or so. You can make the math look like whatever you want to look oh, like. A trillion dollars, yeah. So, it's so here we are. Dollars. So it's the, it's, so I mean, the next but, you can, but to be fair, if you want to start using the end of the year run rate on earnings, you could see a $10 run if you thought that these orders were con- going to continue. So let's do that. Let's say 10 bucks. Okay. So it's you know almost at 40 times earnings. Okay. That doesn't seem crazy, right? But I, this is going to be cyclical at some point. But right now it's secular. So I think it's a stay away. For, for me personally, but what I would tell retail is there's a lot of other stocks which have a risk reward profile, which are very different. And you can play the AI craze in, like we just talked about in Taiwan semi or something at a much cheaper way to play it. So. Yeah, but one last point. So today in sympathy, Microsoft, who is a buyer of these chips, okay, is up 4%. Google, which is a buyer of these chips, is up 2%. And I think it's important. These are expensive chips. They're expensive build-outs, these data centers. The cost of compute for like the, the new services that they're going to be providing okay, across their platforms is more expensive. There's no guarantee that this transforms Microsoft and Google's earnings picture anytime soon. You're pulling forward this across the entire trade at a time where these are the only stocks in the entire U.S. stock market that are really working. What incentive does NVIDIA have to give unrealistic guidance? I'm playing devil's advocate. They don't need to raise capital, right? Maybe you'll see insider sell. I don't know that. I'm saying there's no deal coming, right? So if they set themselves up for a credibility problem, which I'm not saying that they are or not, you know, not being completely I, it's just I, I don't know. I'll tell you this. If you listen to the call, which I know you do, you listen to all these, the, the enthusiasm coming out of their call specifically, it's things that, you know, I quite frankly haven't heard from any of these. I truly believe they think they're at the forefront of something special. And apparently they are. I think part of the problem is when there is something special out there, everybody runs to that. So the moat that they have Somebody said last night on Fast Money, it's 90% they have of the market. That's going to, by definition, will dwindle. More competition will come into the space. So maybe their moat is wide and deep now. That will diminish over time. AMD is up 10% today. It's up 50% from its lows this month. It gapped down 9% after its Q1 earnings, given the results and guidance that they had. So investors are going everywhere that they can, except one place. I'm going to leave that one um, well, for it's you. Intel. It is Intel. But it's interesting. It's gained 50%. Like, think about that. After their report, AMD went from, I think, 90-ish down to 81 and change. And that report wasn't particularly good. The lifeline came in the form of that partnership with Microsoft, if you recall. Well, and, and so Microsoft, who's been ordering from NVIDIA, right? So think about this. All of a sudden they said, hey, listen, we need a second supplier here. We need AMD. So they, they whatever the, the joint venture that they're going to do in support, they're probably guaranteeing a certain amount of orders, which makes you think, though, at some point, a lot of these NVIDIA orders that might be priced out into the end of this year, they might go away, right? Because if AMD is this good second source, listen, again, I wouldn't buy it with your money, okay? I wouldn't buy it with my worst enemy's money right here. Is it going to tick a trillion dollars probably? Yeah, it's going to ring a bell up there or something like that. We've never had a semiconductor company trade with a trillion-dollar market cap, trade at 25 times sales. Unless they are doing something that is totally different than has ever been accomplished in the 70, 80-year history of the semiconductor business, I don't know, man. It seems it's a, a great much. company. And you know, I think Scott McNeely from Sun Microsystems back in it 23, 24 years ago, I mean, there was a huge valuation put on the back of that stock. And I think he tried to explain to investors how the math just didn't line up in terms of what the expectations were. And at a certain point, math does matter. But it's a great story. It's a great company. But the excitement around chips, AI, this sector, I think is masking some of the bigger problems. 
Earlier this week, you heard Jamie Dimon say, get ready for 6 or 7% rates for the foreseeable future. Danny, you talk about this all the time. Short-term rates are telling a really ominous story. Now, the S&P is still 4155 This is the same level it was, I want to say, this time or early April. So, yes, we've gone up. We've gone down. We get right back where we started from. Bulls are getting chopped up. I think bears are getting chopped up without question. How does it resolve itself? I think valuations matter, and I do think the economy is slowing, and I do think rates are going to stay higher for longer. And you have seen a pretty significant move higher in both two-year and 10-year rates. And, oh, by the way, that twos-tens yield curve, which I think got down to about 40 basis points, that seems to be widening as well. So all these things to be concerned about are still there. They have not gone away. They have not abated. The last thing you just said is the most important. I was actually looking at that. We're back to 70 basis mm -hmm. points, I think, on the 210, because the inherent view is that if the two-year keeps going up, it's going to slow things down. That we know. So you just said it's ominous. I would look at it different way. It leads to bad things, but it's not ominous because people believe there's a potential for a soft landing. Now, we know there's tons of macro funds which are you know, going long and short rates on literally on a daily basis, trying to time this debt ceiling issue, right? Trying to time what the Fed's going to do. And all that matters is that the market has been trading, ex-NVIDIA, for a second, completely on Fed fund futures, 1,000%. We were at 25% chance of a hike in June a week ago, even three days ago, four days ago. We're now at 50-50 of what's going to happen in June. The rate cuts keep getting pushed out. What's going to happen? That's fine if you believe that we are going to have a soft landing. But do not extract a name like NVIDIA, which is any secular growth area, to the market. Because what Jamie Dimon said at the annual meeting, right, was it's kind of the hard assets, real tangible assets you are probably overvalued. Look what PacWest just did. I'll bring it up right now. So no one paid attention. They sold $2.6 billion worth of construction loans for $2.4 billion to a company, Kennedy Wilson. Ironically, Kennedy Wilson, was a, it's a $2.2 billion company. At one point, was Vinnie Porter and I at Seawolf was one of our largest holders. It's a great company, right? It's a multifamily real estate. They have all the stuff all over, mainly West Coast. Stock hasn't done particularly well. But we talked about a few weeks ago that Blackstone getting involved, that the non-banks would start to rescue the banks, and it's actually happening. My point is that, Jamie Dimon's point is that there's so many of those assets that are out there that are the real economy stuff that's actually happening. And I feel like the NVIDIAs of the world and good on them are are – masking this or giving people a false sense of not hope, but a security that the market's fine. It's not, that's not the economy. It's a secular growth area for sure. And so again, you know what, this, this could be a time capsule to January, 2000. I mean, no, this conversation, right. I mean, like think about that, yeah. right? Yeah. It's not being, again, it's, Vinny <laughs> will laugh wherever. It's not about being, being bearish. It's being, it's, it's trying to be a realist and understand that, and that's fine. This could go on for a little bit longer, and, yeah, the market's higher than I thought so it would be. So you keep bringing yeah. up our what are we doing, pals. When are they going to come back We're coming on back here? We're, because we got to do that, right? Yeah, I they'll be on Vinny in the next Porter. week or so. Well, I'd love to see tweet the guys. Tweet at those guys, please, yeah. okay? Yeah, tweet at them. No, but not we, I just call. Like, I have the, their number. The, I have their digits. The I can text Let's get them all geeked yeah. up. Oh, that's what I mean The listeners should tweet at them. When you think about some of the areas that we think are most reflective of maybe how the economy is doing and, you know, energy and resource, they're not trading well. I mean, they're just not trading well. And then, Guy, you spent some time after we saw Procter's earnings and, and Coke and Pepsi talking about some of these staples and just there's no organic growth. It's pricing power, you know. and Which and, is going away, by well, the way. Well, did you see how the consumer staple stocks have dropped like a lug in the last, well, you know, week and a half or so? Look at Walmart, right? And I said, it's priced to perfect. Stocks kind of languished here. The stock's expensive, right? But they told you what's happening in yes. the real economy. It's happening. I mean, you can hide in Walmart. It's fine, but it's expensive. So that's a, a name that's a staple name, right? Period. End of story. Pays a dividend, buys back stock. It's fine. 
But if that's what's telling me what's going on in the economy, Dan, to your point, how do I kind of extrapolate? Throw in the Saudi oil minister basically warning short Ouchies. Warning. He said they're going to have ouchies right, or something have ouchies. like that. Right, exactly. Warning you, don't do it. Don't go short oil because we're, you know. They're we're, coming. We're com and exactly. that's, I think, I don't know exactly. Please don't add me. I think the OPEC meeting is either next week or the week out. It's coming to a theater near you. And they're going to ram it up our collective asses without question. Yes, crude oil has gone nowhere, but I think crude's about to get back on its horse. We'll see what that means for energy stocks. But to your point, Dan, they haven't traded particularly well either. And some of these commodities we don't talk about, steel, copper, iron, or all these different things. That's exactly right. Getting if, whacked. Right. If this was really a soft landing, really being priced, it was really all those things. Those things would be acting better. And they're not because we know what's coming. We know the lag effect. We know the Fed's not cutting in June. We know the Fed's not cutting in July. Could it happen in September? I don't know. But when we start to trade at 19 times, that's a credit conditions loosening. That's the market conditions that they look at it. The Fed, and listen, we ended Q1 on the earnings, and they dropped less than 4% versus what people thought could be around 8 Great. Second quarter, I don't know. Back end, it's going to be really back end loaded as far as getting to this $220 number that's kind of out there. But I'm focused on now is the 2024 number because three months from now, we're going to start to roll into 2024. Going back to Jamie Dimon starting out the week when he said, get prepared. He's, he said, like he literally said this, I'm telling people, I'm telling people here at my bank, I'm telling other banks, be prepared for six, seven. So what does that mean for these held to maturity assets that some of these regionals still own here, right? When we had yields come in, we had the 210 spread flatten a bit here, and now it's widening back out. That's not good. Like, are we going to see a rehash of what we saw in February and March in these regionals, especially again, and we, we just talked about this, CME FedWatch is suggesting a 50-50 chance of a raise at the June meeting in a few weeks here, and it's starting to price one even in July. So like, are we going to have another inning of this little banking crisis that we had in March? We talked about this. It's been a month. I think that the flight of deposits per se, I think we're kind of past that because I do believe there's an implied guarantee from the government that can happen. Now, within that, to your point, can you offload these assets? I just mentioned PacWest. But they have to offload so, them at losses. Correct. They just yeah. offloaded yeah. it for, for $2.6 billion, for $2.4 billion, and there's another $350 million that's going to come after that. They're lining up liquidity. I think that's a smart, prudent thing to do. To your point, as rates move back higher again, we're seeing defaults in commercial real estate by the day, right? We're seeing these things, and banks are changing their underwriting standards. That's been going on in real time. And so you can see how the bank indexes are performing. I mean, look at the XLF, right? They're, it's just dead money. So, these so, are utilities. So there's also a headline today that I saw um, was a really interesting guy that First Republic was obviously bought by J.P. Morgan. And we know that J.P. Morgan did not have an interest in SVB's business. That's why they didn't bid for it, really. Okay. And then First Republic, it seems like they were kind of forced to buy it. And the headline today was that their bankers are now going through all these personal loans. This was how First Republic got all those deposits, right? They're going to shut those down. Okay, 100%. So think about it. What does that mean for consumer spending? What does it mean for, like, like you know what I mean? Like, it takes time. Of, and we've talked about this for a while. I mean, regardless of where interest rates go now, I don't think, even think it's about the Fed. You, Danny, you talk about this for a for a few weeks now, the Fed's a bit of a sideshow. Now it's about credit and the tightening of credit and what it means to the consumer, what it means to small business, and then subsequently, what's it mean to the stock market? Again, these things don't happen today, next week, but over the course of time, it's going to filter through the system without question. And it's fascinating because we've talked about this on the bullish side. of the, We're not always bearish, by the way. I look up today and I see Toll Brothers, all-time high. Pulte Homes, all-time high. I mean, that's counter to what we're saying, but in terms of the Fed's job, I mean, it seems like conditions are as loose as they've been. You have so many cross-currents going on. My point is, the Fed might be done, 
rates aren't going lower anytime soon, and we have not felt the full impact of a 500 basis points of hikes in the course of 13 or 14 months. Put on your bullish hat for a minute and talk about the fact that first quarter earnings weren't as bad as expected. Fed could be done. Let's just say that they're done. But let's not forget about this $8.6 trillion balance sheet which is still sitting out there. Let's not forget about the liquidity which the Treasury basically has been putting into the market as they're grappling with this debt ceiling issue, right? And when this debt ceiling issue finally abates, which hopefully is in the next few days, could get pushed to September or not, what's going to happen? That's going to roil the markets. You talk about rates. I think that's part of the anticipation. The rates moving higher is they're going to issue a lot of treasuries coming to the market because they need to fund the government. And that's been on hold for now. So that's sucking liquidity basically out of the market. As rates move higher again, guy, on a risk-adjusted basis, and I look at bonds versus stocks or risk-free return versus potential return from stocks, to me, it's a no-brainer. Now, there's value stocks being left for dead right now, which are not participating. Those are buys, right? You know, they're, they're, I don't have a list of them in front I of me. I tried buying one a couple weeks ago, that PayPal, after results, um, and it was not particularly good. It's making new 52-week lows. <laughs> I, I mean, like, so the stuff, I, I'm literally short yeah. the stuff that he is literally me. up 25%, yeah. Yeah. skipping $100 billion in market cap at a clip here. And then I try to buy things. We talked about, I think, PayPal after its results. There's pressure on margins. You know, some transaction volume slowing down. This that or whatever, but look at look at today. Square, PayPal, Bill.com. They're making new fifty-two week lows. They can't like like literally people are tripping over each over to sell them. I puked it out. I try to trade with limits. I either trade with limits when I do it with stocks, or I define my risk as I did with Nvidia with puts. But it doesn't feel particularly good to have one thing going one way, one going the other. And what do you want from me, guy? Do you play poker, Danny? Oh, you do. Yeah. So you'll you'll be at a table, and every once in a while, you you're the person that has to answer big blind, little blind, yeah, yeah. small blind, yeah. whatever blind. Yeah. yeah. Got to put your chips in. I got it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you're just not getting cards. You feel good. You get impatient. Get impatient. Yeah. But then what do you do when you get? Sometimes you just got to get up from the table. Yep. Your chips are still there. Uh -huh. So. Somebody might put the blind in for you. You got to go. You got to put like water on your face, right? Correct. Yep. You got to clean yourself up, like right. James Bond in one of those movies. He goes yep. to the bathroom, Royale. And yeah. cleans some his shit up, and then he comes back. Well, he's like ready it's poison and didn't well, have like, I mean, save his own life. Yeah, noticed. I got you. Yeah. He goes in, yeah. he gives himself an injection, yeah. but he comes back looking good. Yep. But he was getting his ass kicked yep. prior. Correct. I'm getting my ass. I think we're all he collectively. He ended up getting a straight flush, by the way. But yeah. go ahead. Well, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. In that but movie, though, he got more than his ass kicked. Yeah. He Is Remember it that time? Yeah, yeah, I do. Of oh, course. Oh, yeah. oh that hurt. Not. Is that, yeah, is that, does that NVIDIA chair? chair? Is that an NVIDIA chair? That, that might be the NVIDIA <laughs> chair. <laughs> oh my God. That put him, like, that messed him up for a while. Right, where are you no going kids, with this? No Go kids. back to your poker Is reference. this the point where... Am we, I playing with 2-7 offsuit in this market? Are, we, yes. getting, are we getting up from the table? Are we dousing our faces with some water? And are we coming back ready to go? Because second half is upon... We're going to wake up next week. It's the second half of the year. It's there's June, been, baby. There's been several times where I felt like... So you, you're feeling this on, way. There's been several times in this market where I felt I had pocket... Jacks, right. maybe queens, not kings or aces, no. but pocket jacks. jacks or queens where I felt and the flop had a king come out yeah, on and it, then you know but I still dead. felt like, you know, I got this thing, right? Let me go buy some S&P puts, and it wasn't. The river was a two, and he had two king, and he had a full house, and I got screwed, Wait, and the whole thing. Did you just Could turn this coming? into this douchey all-in podcast? Uh -huh. no, 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 no. I will take them on in a poker game, all those guys. That's fine. I don't even know those guys. And let me tell you a story about it. I played in the World Series of Poker years ago. No, you did not. Talk about being impatient, so I make it through day one. You got through day one? Hold on, I'm chip leader at the table. Stop it. Not at the table, not at the thing. How many times did you do this? You're chip leader at the table. Go to day two. Hold on. Go to day two. 
And, you know, at this point, I'm 42, 43 years old, so I have responsibilities. Years ago. The reason the young people win the World Series of Poker is they can be out there for two weeks. They're 23 years old. They have no other responsibilities what they do. And they're good poker players. And they're good poker players, but they're patient and whatever. They do that for a living. I, would, I did it as a tourist. I mean, I paid the money to enter. Ten I didn't, grand. I didn't qualify. Oh, yeah, you know what it is. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm there. I'm enjoying myself, whatever. So my wife was there with our friends. For the, the first way, three days. Your wife's nuts. Let me tell you how I this say works. That Let me voice. tell you how this works. For amateurs that sign up, that don't get the bid, that aren't the famous poker yeah. players, or whatever, you play basically on a Friday for day one, and your day two is on a Monday or a Tuesday. Okay, so you're there for three days. I got destroyed in the casino in the off days right. of the poker. Okay, so it was a horrible. Anyway, I'm at the table. I'm halfway through day two. I got a pretty good chunk at my table. Like I'm, I'm probably second, you know, at the table with chips. Hundred and something thousand of fake chip right. money, whatever. So I'm playing against this German champ, and I can't remember his name. i got to go back and look. I don't know where he ended up from here. Anyway, Franz. funny enough, I had king, queen, whatever I had. I'm sitting at the table. My wife texts me that my kid was just thrown out of summer camp, okay? And I'm thinking to myself, I, I'm here. I've been here five days already. I Get me out of this place. And I, you you know, I made a wrong bet. You I made all a patient bet. I went all in. The German looked at me like, you come to me. He knew what, not that he knew my kid got kicked out, but he, he was waiting for me the whole time. Gone on the plane, chased my flight, get me the hell out of there. So anyway, you so do I've, get impatient. So I've, had the, I've had the impatient, but, and I, I think it's actually a pretty decent analogy, you know, and I feel like right now people are catching the, a river card, so to speak, and they're getting bailed out by this NVIDIA, you know, they, they caught the flush on the river, so to speak. That's fine. So it's a long game. You got to be patient to your point, guy. You got to take your shots when they're kind of there. And I think the cards will come into view here soon, but, but, you but know, sometimes you have to put cold water on your face just to sort of re you have to recalibrate just broke a pen. I got and I love about. that, that you were King queen, probably off suit. You're like, F it. I'm right, going all yeah. in right here. Yeah. Why not? Why not? And exactly. you, you might, you might've won the world series. Of I poker. chose poorly. You chose poorly. New Indiana Jones movie coming out. I heard by the way. about that. Yeah, that'll be he's, good. By the way, Harrison, Ford, he's gotta be 80 something years he's old. 80. Amazing. Callista Flock is still married to Callista Flock. By the way, I much enjoy, this is much more enjoyable than talking about what's going on in the market, to be honest with you. But let's go back here. No, we are talking about the market. a real bummer with the Tina Turner that we came in. When Vinny and Porter were on a few weeks ago, I think we used Thunderdome. We did. We did. That was my man Exactly. And that would have been a good one. What does that got to do with Tina Turner? What do you mean? She was the Thunderdome. Return to Thunderdome. She was an actress. Mad Max. She was the queen. Tina Turner. Yeah, she did. She did. R.I.P. I, I don't. I don't like those movies. Now let me ask you this, Danny Moses. If we talked about the debt ceiling and I wasn't paying attention, I apologize. But that is still out there, and apparently all these cats are going on some sort of break. So as of this taping, it's fair to say nothing's been accomplished. The Nvidia chip will solve it because the artificial Nvidia intelligence will, is what's going to get know, us through. You, you say that half in jest. I mean, we're, that's coming to a theater near Kathy you. Kathy Wood sold all her Nvidia in January. I mean, is that insane? I mean, of all the things to sell, of all the nonsense she talks about, that was the one. That was the nonsense that actually happened. That was the one. She like, sold her NVIDIA in yeah, January? All of it. Anyway, oh you can't make you it talk, up. So, I mean, yeah, she's playing pocket twos there. So we have Cameron coming on. Cameron okay, Dawson. After this, we have a great conversation. New Edge Well, We also have, I think some of our listeners have heard us kind of make fun of, we have Stephen Rafis, who's on our, our team here at Rich Russell Media. He's also on the PLL Cannons. That is the premier lacrosse league. They just dropped some... Info about Some the yeah. each team now has a city associated well, they with haven't, it. They haven't chosen the cities yet. They have them, not they're chosen gonna, the they're cities. They're going to do yet. that. Paul Rabel, who's the founder of the league, president of the league, he's going to be on Fast Money tonight wow. with us. That oh. would be Thursday as we're recording. Um, but we also, Guy and I sat down. Sure, we did. With the aforementioned Stephen Rafis. We had a little preview of the Division One lacrosse final four that's taking place this weekend cool. in Philadelphia. And we're going to just run a few minutes of that clip. And then if you want to watch the whole 
video of it. We did a video. It's going to be on our Risk Versal Media YouTube page. We have our own YouTube so page. Have, Subscribe to that. Yeah, and smash the... Uh, smash the shit out of the like button. Yeah. So so stick around for our conversation with Stephen Rafis. Preview Division One lacrosse tournament this weekend, Final Four. And then also he gives us a preview of the PLL sure season. He he's going to, uh, what do they call it, training camp or training something like camp. that? Training camp. They're over to week. Albany, New York, I believe. That's right. And then the league, you know, the, the starts All the players that. together. Yeah. So we're like in a we, bubble. We had a great convo with him. I like Steven. Right, so I've always around, liked Stick Steven. around for that. Stick around for that. And stick around for this because i got a question for Danny Moses. Are you surprised that gold has not traded better given everything that's going on? given the way rates have moved, given all this unrest politically, some of the noise we're hearing. I mean, we didn't even talk about China, you know, China, Micron, NVIDIA talking about the potential upheaval that would happen if we had this trade war. All these different things nobody seems to care about. Gold market is sold off. I wouldn't say significantly, but it's pulled back a little bit. Yeah, here. we Thoughts? talked. We talked last week. I think any pullback is a buying opportunity, and I think we're sitting at 1940 or 1950 here. We got as high as 2050, 2060, so it's off roughly a hundred bucks here. And it's obvious why it's down. And you know, it's, it's down because the soft landing may happen and the fed's not going to be cutting and literally fed fund futures lined up with gold. You can see it. I want to go back to the comment that Dan made about square and PayPal. And I, I talk about this all the time about institutional positioning, specifically long only mutual fund positioning. They have to make a choice in their technology allocation, whether they want to overweight technology or underweight it, and then what names to own. And for better or for worse, Square and PayPal fall into the tech space, right? Certain names like Visa go into both tech and fins and whatever. But I can have my tech exposure not get crushed. The reason that they're down today is they have to now sell those and buy NVIDIA. They have to now sell those and buy Microsoft. And this has been part of this thing. And you will get opportunities, people out there in these names like PayPal. And I don't know about Square as much PayPal. So to me, I think people have to understand that dynamic of what's going on in the marketplace and how truly powerful that is. Those things don't correct in a day sometimes, right? This takes a few days. So I think that we're going to see this. Normally, these things like this today, NVIDIA, they last more than a day. Now's the time to be probably selling NVIDIA and buying PayPal, to be honest with you, for safety. Let's but, talk yeah. about that real quick, because NVIDIA today, today being Thursday, I want to emphasize that, is going to trade about somewhere between 165 and 180 million shares of volume. That's about four times normal volume. You'll have a gap higher open. You can see it on the chart. So for you armchair technicians out there, you might want to start looking at this. Dan, you mentioned this a number of times. There was no short interest of any significance whatsoever in NVIDIA. So it's not like this move is people covering shorts. It's what Danny's saying. This move is people racing into a stock, a great company, but we believe to be an overvalued company. Now saying that, I've thought that for a while. But technically, if you play this game, I mean, this is one side. This is one part of a two-part series, the famed Gap Island reversal. So if this were to come in Gap lower next week, for whatever reason, buckle up, people, because this thing could get interesting no, it, in a hurry. And all the people that the piled gap. in and got out of all those other names, energy, staples, healthcare, are going to have to get— Oh, retail. Get, have you guys seen— Retail. Nike has sold off 15% in sympathy with Foot Locker, okay? Like, yeah. this is in the last few weeks or so, and that's just from the highs in May. So, yeah, buckle up, man. Listen, literally, I, I think that the next trade 
as far as the market's concerned, is like, okay, let's say we get some deal in the debt ceiling in the next week, okay? Let's see where the S&P can get to because it's got to be other stocks than the ones that are raging today in sympathy with NVIDIA that do that. And if we open up above 4,200 and we can't hold, then watch out. Then then sell in May and go away might be in in effect here. So that, to me, you know, is the real story. But there's also, when you look at Abercrombie and Fitch and American Eagle, Side by side, right? One had a good quarter, one had a bad quarter. Stock was rewarded and punished like they should be, kind of respectfully. That gives me hope. But you can't meme those stocks. There's no AI there, right? There's no like kind of things. And so the stuff under the surface, like there's real work being done, I believe, in these in the markets, Dan, outside of these top names. And the top, I don't know what the percentage now is for what these top seven, eight names mean to the market, it gets more bifurcated every single day as far as the breadth is getting worse and worse. And so what's the buy point on NVIDIA if it drops back to $250? Is that where you buy it? Because why? That's the scary part of the unwind when things trade on momentum. I'm not going to stand in the way of it right now, let it go where it's going to go. And last week we talked about, I go, I'd rather short it down 10, 15% than short it there, which by the way, would now be down 30 percent, 35 percent from there. But you get my point. That's the danger. We're People forget the choruses that, you know, this is the greatest company of all time. These voices are extraordinarily loud. Were the same voices when this was a hundred and eight dollar stock that universally said, oh, my God, you know, this is yesterday's news companies, blah, blah, blah. And I'll also say this because I like playing numbers games. NVIDIA added two hundred billion dollars Two, as Danny said earlier, $200 billion of market cap to the company. There are 45 companies globally that have a market cap of $200 billion. Think about that. So, I mean, that market cap ad just put them in the top 50. It's really remarkable when you think about it. It's the company, the ad is bigger than Cisco, the company. I mean, it's, it's, Here's it's danger, hard guy. to wrap your head around I know around we keep talking about it because I think it's a symbol for the culmination of everything that's happened. Again, good companies, fine. It just reinforced people's leave. I knew it. If you're a retail broker and you had your clients in it, you knew it. They're not selling now. It's going to take a lot to, yeah. for them to sell. But who's the incremental buyer, to your point, Guy, at these prices? I just mentioned that, yeah, funds, certain funds are going to have to rotate and pick a name because they've missed out on. Who is the incremental buyer here at these levels at this valuation? It is what it is. And I wish we could talk about other things we can. But this is this is what's most important right now because it's been such a focal point and it's representing this sector that is green shoots, right? And it's great. AI, you know, as a growth sector, I think it's great. And you have real companies that are backing it and real companies of the Microsofts and the Googles of the well, world. It's not are a actually sector. Doing it. I mean, that, that's it the is, one but thing. It is, but it's, no, no, it's what a I'm saying is play within technology. Right. That's and, all. But, but that's what technology is. There's, yeah. uh, there's tech, new technologies that bubble up. They disrupt old technologies. The actual players that benefit it, if you want to call them a sector, they're very shallow. But yeah. the way technology is dispersed a- along these different platform companies and then work themselves into other industries, that's the trade. And, and I get it. But I'll just tell you this. I mean, like, we're far away from realizing that in EPS terms. All Right. Well, listen, I think we kind of beat that 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 horse to death. No, but it was, a, it was a good conversation, yeah. as you would say. It's great seeing both of you IRL. By the way, beat that horse. So, you know, I gave my Preakness pick last week, and I don't like five to two, two to one horses. My you horse don't play chalk. Came in, he ended up going off a of four to one, but lost by literally half a nose, but it did pay. So I said, win, play, show. It returned $5 to Why place and 280 to show. Because you, you came at me on the derby. I on the did derby. not come at Wait you. Wait till the Belmont. I'm going to nail this thing. I did not come at you. I'm going to nail this How thing. How many? So. Okay, we don't know the answer. 
Given what just transpired, Could be four horses, I was going to just say, I don't even. Know. I think there might be five horses in the Belmont. right. No one likes to run a mile and a half. If you no, have nor to. do I. Right. Nor do these horses. Apparently, <laughs> I texted Bob Baffert. By the way, after you know he was Preakness. on our show to congratulate yeah. him. I know he was on our show, yeah. which is why I texted him. Yeah. I said it was. Listen, I know an emotional day for you, right? Lost because he lost a horse earlier in that meet. By the way, Jack Wolf owned a piece of that horse. Starlight Racing owned a piece of that. I saw the group those, that owned it. They were, Cuman, high, they were Saul like Cuman, dancing around. Former sack guy, right? I believe Saul uh, owned a piece. They were called the Avengers. So it was a lot of owners that ended up buying a piece. The of that Avengers. Thing. The Avengers. Yeah, they own that. That's, thing, so. yeah, that's pretty lame. Yeah. By the way, they yeah. may want to think about another name. Uh, when we come back, our conversation with Cameron Dawson, CIO of New Edge Wealth. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one -on -one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Cameron Dawson, welcome back to <laughs> On the Tape, round three. Now, round three, thank you for having me back. The more things change, the more they stay the same, it kind of feels like here. And we've been kind of stuck, not just range-bound, but just kind of the market trying to pick a direction. And I read your weekly, and for better or for worse, I pretty much always agree with it. So I don't know if that's a, a good thing or a bad thing for you. It's kind of let's get into it because I think the best place to start is we just finished Q1 earnings, basically. It's all over. Earnings came in a little bit better. Companies did a great job of managing. There was the haves and the have-nots, but the haves continue to get to the higher levels that may be unsustainable, and the have-nots are kind of being ignored, so there'll be opportunities on both sides. So just your assessment coming out of what we came out with for us, expectations, where we sit now, and then I'll ask you to talk about just kind of earnings in 2023 that seem to be coming off of kind of the low base of 19200 creeping towards the kind of the 220 somewhere in the middle there. Sure, I think there's a few things to take away from earnings season. The first one is that even though we beat on 1Q earnings, you didn't see analysts revise up their estimates for the full year, which is an implicit cut for the back half of the year. So it's interesting that you did not see this optimism bleed into the later parts of the quarters, which likely already reflected that the later quarters in this year had a big ramp in 
recovery and earnings already priced in. You have 9% growth already marked down for the fourth quarter of 23, and then another 9 to 10% growth for the full year of 2024. So that optimism wasn't increased. It wasn't tempered. It's been about the same. The other thing that is interesting from earnings season is that, yes, some names did have full-year estimates revised up. Warren Pies on, on Twitter posted a, a, a chart back a couple days ago showing that just like the market breadth from a price standpoint has been really narrow, market breadth from an earnings revision standpoint has also been very narrow. So only top the top 10 stocks within the index drove the entirety of the revisions higher, while the remainder 490 in the S&P 500 just sort of dwindled and have continuously revising lower. The last point to make on earnings season is one that's really interesting if you're a cyclical investor, which is that you saw big upside surprises to a lot of cyclical names, your cats, your deers of the world, machinery, of course. There's other cyclical parts of the market, like semiconductors. That's a bit of a different animal, uh, mostly on on today. Uh, But that what you saw is price reactions from a lot of these cyclical companies exposed to global growth was really weak and negative. So you beat you raise earnings and your stock goes down. That tells you that the market has already priced in the entirety of the good news and that it's no longer willing to put a peak valuation on a peak earnings number. And so, yes, global growth can continue. Yes, there's potential for further upside revisions. But what you'll start seeing is those multiples start to get whittled down. That's usually the sign of a sea change in a cyclical change. When when those stocks go down on good news, that's a sign of of really a trend change happening in that part of the market. So the sectors that kind of outperformed consumer discretionary was very good, right, in the quarter you saw, you know, utilities were poor, right? They're not sexy, the consumer discretionary. Companies that have good balance sheets that weren't impacted by higher rates, right? That people can see they don't need to come back to the market for refinance, that have pricing power still to a degree. But it seems like even within those sectors themselves, consumer discretionary being one, we're seeing retail bifurcation. Like we're seeing that happening right now. So are we going to get back to kind of a, a stock picker's market here? And it feels like we're close. When I see Abercrombie and American Eagle side by side in the mall, one performing and one not, and, you know, the investor community actually rewarding one and punishing the other it gives me hope. I'm not saying that I haven't done enough work grandly on that, but are we going to get back to this kind of stock picking? I think we are there because we're in the part of the cycle where liquidity does become more scarce. Now, we can talk about liquidity that's actually becoming has become more abundant since the beginning of the year that's driven some interesting dynamics in markets. But when you get late cycle and cost of funds goes higher, availability of funds go higher, bank credit tightens, that does have a tendency to separate the men from the boys. That is the Warren Buffett proverbial tide going out. And so that's why we typically do see failing breadth starting fading breath at the end of market cycles because you start seeing only the strong ones really able to keep up. I think you could even do it from an index level basis, which is look at how weak small caps have been. So we've seen small caps continue to underperform. And the takeaway from that part of the market is to remember that 40% of them are unprofitable and they have more floating rate debt exposure than large cap, much more floating rate debt exposure and a lot more absolute debt. So what that means is that they're more sensitive to higher interest rates, which is why even though we have all of this optimism in certain pockets of the market, small caps just sit out completely 
because they are still going to be the ones that truly feel the impact of softening economy, higher interest rates, and the potential for further economic uncertainty ahead. So you mentioned liquidity, and you've written about it in your weekly piece here a little bit. Talk to us a little bit about that, because I think it has something to do with what happened in March with the regional banks, right? But it seems like that increased liquidity went into 10 stocks, not bank stocks, right? Not regional bank stocks either. You know, it, it went into the, the 10 biggest names in, in, in the entire market. And if you look at the outperformance of the NASDAQ off the lows in early March versus let's say the S&P 500, it's really noticeable. Yeah, I, I'd like to take you back to December of 2018. That was the birth of the big tech rally that took us through the end of 2021. And what happened in December of 2018 is that you saw a peak in real interest rates. Real interest rates were about 1%. And then over the course of the Fed pivot in 2019, and then the double down in the face of COVID and the continued easing policy throughout 2021, you saw real interest rates go to negative 1%. That drove a massive, huge rally in growth stock valuations. So there's been a strong relationship between growth stocks and valuations, the PE multiples, and real interest rates, an inverse correlation. So high real interest rates, bad for growth stocks. Should be until 2023. 2023, we've seen real interest rates go back to their highs. They're now at about 1.5%, and yet growth stock valuations are up eight or 10% year-to-date. So what gives? How could growth stocks be trading at valuation levels that are now back to pandemic-level bubble Area. So we are above the 2019, early 2020 peak. We're back in that bubbly territory. I think it's liquidity. And I think the source of the liquidity, and this is really backed up by incredible work that Dan Clifton has done over at Strategus, where he's created a liquidity basket of stocks and created a liquidity index to say, look, there's a strong relationship here to show that Growth stocks, the NASDAQ, long duration names, speculative names, all benefit when liquidity is becoming more abundant. But how could liquidity be becoming more abundant if the Fed's raising interest rates? They're effectively putting their foot on the gas and the brake at the same time. The source of this liquidity is coming from three important areas. The first one you mentioned, which is the response by the Fed to the banking issues. So opening up these lending facilities and that increased the Fed balance sheet. They reclassified some of that. So now it's not impacting the balance sheet. But you do have the big repo facilities that are being used. That effectively adds liquidity. Probably the most important one, though, is the Treasury General account. And it shouldn't be lost on people that the last time we had an unexplained growth rally was in the summer of 2021 which also was the last time we were going into a debt ceiling and we had a big drawdown of the Treasury General account. So what the TGA is, is a cash balance for the Fed. The Fed, uh, sorry, for the Treasury. So the, and it's held at the New York Fed. When the Treasury spends money, what you have is it, it spends money, it goes into people's bank accounts, into reserves. And usually what happens is they issue debt, which sops up that liquidity. If they're not issuing debt because they're nearing the debt ceiling and they're trying to reduce how much new debt they're, they're issuing, they're just spending cash. So you're not getting this one-for-one one kind of neutral impact of issue bonds and spend money. So this has the net impact of increasing reserves, adding liquidity, and thus that's how we think you can explain this outperformance of growth stocks despite the fact that real interest rates continue to rise. So from your seat, 
and you talk to a lot of retail people, and you know, I'm sure some. You of mean emails, that won't resonate with retail? It's so wonky. Yeah, yeah, What's I get it. it. I get it. No, and I, but I'm saying is that like it's tough. You, you, everything you just said makes sense. I mean, that's those are facts. And stock prices and certain names are telling a different story. And for better or for worse, retail investors own these stocks, and they think that's the stock market, right? So to try to educate them, to try to explain and really warn them, or just give them the you know, guidance to help them reflect. They don't care. They don't care until they look back and say, what just happened? Oh, that's what happened. They don't even know what that is. So how do you dumb it down to people? I know exactly what you're talking about. Believe me, like it hasn't paid to understand the plumbing, the system for a long time, because for 13 years, all they did was print. And in hindsight, why even do fundamental analysis when the, when the Fed's printing, right? So how do you guide these investors and just say, and I'll talk right before we came on here, we were talking about NVIDIA in general. We'll just use that as an example of a name that's in the news today, Dan. And the market cap today went from $750 billion to $950 billion, roughly. It'll be the biggest one-day move of all time. It'll, it'll exceed Apple's move from last year. So the incremental purchase of the stock from here, and I would argue if it had been at a $200 billion market cap, and I have no, I'm not long or short, I'm $200 billion market cap, would it have gone to $400 billion today? Would it, like, my point is there's no basis for valuation. So how do you tell people? How do you kind of guide them or warn them or help them to understand? Because you're not going to talk anyone out of it because he just got positive reinforcement. Yeah, it and it does build on itself. And I think that there's a few things to keep in mind. Uh, we should always be very careful ascribing narrative to price action. And I think we talked about this the first time that I came on the podcast, is that oftentimes what people do is they see a chart that goes up or down and they find a narrative to fit that chart, when in reality, that's not at all what the driver is of why the stock is going up. It can be something like flows. It can be speculative buying behavior, um, or it can actually be due to fundamentals. It could be liquidity, a whole host of things. It's rarely the narrative that captures the zeitgeist or the hearts and minds of people. So that's the first point is that when I talk to clients about getting exposure to big mega trends, we always have to talk about it on time scales because I think the, the biggest danger you can make, and we can see this in any bubble, is people saying, it's okay, I'm buying the future. That's a problem if you price the entirety of the bright prospect of the future into today's valuation. So I think the easiest example of this is Zoom back trading at 80 times sales in 2021. I was about to say, Kathy Wood, I mean, the first person that came to mind was selling that dream, but keep going. Yeah, Sorry. yeah. who also sold all of her NVIDIA. So. Yeah, amazing. You can't even make that up. <laughs> you can't right. make it up. Yeah. But, but when you price in the entirety of growth into today's valuation, that's where you have an issue for forward returns because what comes after bubbles? crashes. The problem is bubbles usually last a heck of a lot longer and get a heck of a lot sillier than anybody expects. And we were talking earlier about the lesson, and I love this from Morgan Housel and his psychology of money. He talks about how the rationality of people participating in bubbles, people buying Cisco in 1999 at 150 times earnings, were they rational or not? If they had a two-week holding period, they were pretty rational. They didn't care about the valuation because they're not holding it through the forward, the entirety of that time frame. But if people were buying Cisco because they thought it was the future of the world and the company was great and the internet and all this prospect and they were going to hold it for 20 years, that was a terrible move. So I think that if you want to participate in names that have momentum and are going to the moon, it requires you to be more active. I call them Kenny Rogers stocks. 
You got to know when to hold them and you got to know when to fold them. So you have to make a buy and you have to make a sell decision. If you buy and hold and blindly say, I'm going to put this away for 20 years and everything's going to be great, you're probably going to look at your account in the midst of the run-up to the bubble. You're going to get anchored to that valuation. And then when it draws down 50, 60, 70%, as NVIDIA drew down 50% last year, you probably are going to lose your cool and not be willing to ride out through that 20-year period. So I think that that we we have to be careful about narratives and we have to be careful about timeframes when participating in things that clearly have momentum that can feed on itself and not necessarily be based in fundamental reality. You know, I love the example you give of Cisco, and there was a handful of names, Qualcomm, and I was just uh, mentioning it to somebody else earlier. I had um, dinner last night with Jim Chanos, who's a friend of the pod here, a good friend of mine, and he was highlighting the similarity with what was going on with NVIDIA in the aftermarket as we were dining, and I was uh, crying into my martini a little bit. He was and, buying, uh, I assume. Well, well, no. <laughs> but but it, yes, he was buying dinner, yeah. yeah, yeah who needs no, olives when you have tears? That's right, and there was nothing left. Um, it was extra dirty, please, people. Um, <laughs> So, but he highlighted, you know, Qualcomm and, you know, he said, just go look at the chart from 1998 when it was $10 and and it topped out. It had a massive blow off top in January of 2000, up near 100. Cisco had the same sort of formation. Now we know that Cisco lost 85% of its value. You could make the argument, NVIDIA is a very different company. Microsoft, if you're, you know, is up three and a half percent sympathy with NVIDIA today. Google's up a couple percent, right? So all the major players in this space are being dragged up. And so I get that. And to your point, about trying to figure out when the bubble bursts, it can be a very painful sort of endeavor. But we highlighted last week on the pod is like, you know, there were headlines that Steve Cohen was talking about how this AI thing is for real and he's getting along these stocks, Dan Druckenmiller, David Tepper. I mean, the list goes on. So this time it's the billionaires. It's the biggest, you know, in the hedge fund class. And that makes me a little nervous. But I also know about all three of them, or at least two of them, that they buy into your Kenny Rogers mantra here. And so when you see a company like this that is up almost 300%, gaining $200 billion in market cap just today, I'm not sure any of those guys are out there buying right now. It's like saying, hit me, and you have 20 on the table. So your thoughts, I mean, just on that, everything Dan's really talking about in terms of, it's not just duration, but here's the thing. The FOMO is now in full gear. Like if we were in, if there's 10 gears to FOMO, it was nine, it's 10 now. Because not retail, institutional investors that have ne- that have been underweight, that have kind of, t- they, they chase in January a little bit, they chase in February a little bit, you had the sell-off happen, like I knew it, I knew it. Now they now they have no choice because as we get to the end of the second quarter and their numbers are gonna be in the lower quartile or you know wherever they're gonna be, they're screwed. So their risk reward now is to pile in to these names. And so I worked in that business. I mean, I understand and they're gonna hold their nose and they're gonna do it and it's probably last in, first out in terms of what this is gonna be. I know you talk to institutional people also. How does that conversation differ? There's a few things to note on the positioning front. Uh, If you look at trend following positioning, and Deutsche Bank published a chart about this a couple days ago, they're actually now at the same degree of exposure to the market, the same long degree of exposure to the market as they were in January of 2022. So they've gone from being very short to now being back 
long. And yeah. and so I do think that we can't really make the argument that there's that wall of money for that part of the market. Other institutions, if you look at Bank of America fund manager surveys, for example, yes, we still have elevated cash balances. That's a terrible timing tool. Uh, we saw that back in 2008 that we actually saw the peak in cash balances about six months and 30% above where the market eventually bottomed. So take that with a big grain of salt. Uh, the other thing is that we are seeing big inflows into equities. We saw it last week, City published data, $21 billion into equities uh, that they saw. And that was one of the largest weeks in the recent years. So you're right, the FOMO is alive and well. You also see big, huge call option buying on the QQQs, which just means that people are Again, experiencing FOMO, put call ratio remains very subdued, which means that people aren't paying up for downside protection in the broader market. And so all of this points to is that for as negative as people say that they are in surveys, their positioning doesn't really reflect it. So let's just talk about on the sector basis, though. You talked about small caps not trading particularly well down in the year. We know that banks is, you know, are, are down in the year. We know that metals and mining are down in the year. Danny just mentioned, you know, staples just dropped eight and a half percent over the last like two or three weeks or so. We have materials down the year. Retail is down on the year. I mean, there's a lot of parts of the market. Energy stocks are, are, are really bad. Healthcare, whether it's biotech or big pharma. I mean, the list goes on and on. And so when all those things that you just rattled off before are really interesting to me because they're chasing one trade, right? They're tracing the trade that you said has an origin in Christmas Eve of 2018, right? When the Fed pivoted in a way, and that was the start of this thing. And then, you know, we did have that quick drawdown in 2020, right? But then it was all of those names that, again, that reignited that bubble in a way. So to me, it's just like, it feels like the underpinning of the stock market are very reflective of what is likely to happen as far as the economic reality here in the U.S. And we we haven't even talked about China yet, right? And it's like, have you seen what the Shanghai Composite has done in the last week or so? And so to me, I think back to that Q1 GDP print in China, 4.5%. They were doing nearly 7% pre-pandemic. It feels like everything is screaming that we are going to have this slowdown, that the consensus for S&P earnings is still too high. And I'm just curious, how do you square that in a way? Because something's got to give sooner or later. Either all the stuff that's been really weak is going to start to reflect an economy that's maybe about to turn up, or we're going to have all the things that are powering the major indices, right? They're going to turn down. Well, and it's so interesting because the technicals, if you were just looking at the charts, you wouldn't buy any of those things that you mentioned that you you look at the materials, you look at the energy names, the trends have deteriorated significantly. Look at copper breaking down, right, as a sign of potential for weaker growth. And, and then you go, okay, where are the places where I can actually buy good trends? If I'm just buying on technicals and it's all those yeah. areas that we're going are extended. You, and you know what's the best chart in the market, though? Yes. SMH, the socks, the, the semiconductor. It really is. It literally from a, and, and when you look at the breakout today on the back of NVIDIA up 25% in Taiwan Semi, its two biggest components up 11%. If I didn't know anything, and, and, and a lot of you guys who listen to me each week probably say, oh, you don't know anything. But if I didn't, <laughs> if I didn't know anything was going on, I'd buy that chart right now. 
like yeah. SMH. And it's funny because the the technical analyst in me is, is you know would say you know, just buy the momentum and and ride it. Then the other the fundamental analyst says no 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 this is so extended. And I feel like it's like Christina Aguilera and, and Jeannie in a bottle where she says you know my head is saying let's go and my heart is saying no no. Like, what do you do when the only parts of the market you know are essentially defying a reality of what could be a future weakening. We have to remember, semiconductor stocks are extremely, extremely cyclical. And so if you have a recession, and I understand inventories are low today because we've already seen a big drawdown from all the pandemic disruptions, but you're not actually pricing in any kind of recessionary scenarios, nor are you pricing in a recession scenario into the broad S&P, as we talked about earlier with big earnings ramps. So I eventually the gap has to close, just like eventually the gap has to close in the bond market, meaning that the Fed can't keep going out and saying higher for longer, and the bond market can't keep ignoring the fact that the Fed doesn't seem very eager to cut interest rates. And it's incredible how quickly we have seen the pricing of the next couple of months change in the probabilities. Two weeks ago, we were pricing in the probability of a slight cut in June. Now we're pricing in a 45% probability of a hike in June and a 40% probability of a hike in July to capture that possibility of a skip. This bond market is still so whipsawy. Is I, I, It's probably still illiquid in some ways. The volatility is unprecedented. And so if all of these things can't be right at once. Something will have to either catch up, meaning that you'll have to see other stocks catch up to the message that a handful of stocks are telling us, or that handful of stocks will have to catch down to the other 490 names. Quick one. Okay. So CME FedWatch tool has, to your point, about a 50% probability of a June hike. That was 24% a week ago. The two-year yield is at 4.5% that at the start of this month got as low as 3.6%. So you talk about liquidity and you're like, what the hell is going on? How, how did this shift so dramatically in such a short period of time? It's funny because I was talking with, with Scott Wapner last week on Closing Bell and we were talking about the probability of a hike in June. And I said, I think it's a 50-50 chance. And he practically fell off the chair. He's like, what are you even saying? I said, because look, the data is coming in better and the data is not supportive of them backing off. And the Fed is concerned about inflation coming back. And yes, we've already known people are talking about disinflation of goods prices that started in January of 2022. It's been happening now for 18 months. So to price in the fact that now all of a sudden it's it's going to save us from, from higher rates. The other part of it is that if inflation moderates, but this remains a very tight labor market, why would the Fed be cutting rates? Because they're adding stimulus to a, an economy at full employment. They, they will be afraid at that point. That they will that they will create inflation. Tony Dwyer, who's a good friend of ours, put out a note this morning about the soft landing scenario. So the market's starting to just price in soft landing, which he thinks is a bad thing because in a soft landing scenario, the Fed's not not cutting, right? Because it kind of so the market is kind of priced to perfection for a soft landing. To your point, and I watch Fed fund futures is how the market trades. Period. I mean, it's the Fed. There's nothing really else on on the margin. I think about if Nvidia didn't report today, if they hadn't reported today, if it was tomorrow. The S&P could be down 30 or 40 handles right now, but because they did it, you know, it's, it's the, the market's up. It's the narrative of the day. To your point, how do you tell people like to be very careful in these waters? And to that point, 
you know, now we're getting this 20 days away. I think the next Fed meeting, right, Dan, or something like that uh, 20 days from now. And it's like, okay, do I want the debt ceiling issue solved? Maybe I kind of want it pushed to September, just kind of kick it down the road for three months, which they can do. Say, we're going to extend it. You can do these special things and, and we're going to extend it. That's probably the best scenario for the stock market because infl one, one last thing, because inflation, remember we, we, we talked about this last week, Dan, on the show, CPI from a comp perspective is going to look very friendly for the next two months too. So I'm just painting a scenario where give me a reason to sell the market versus, you know, a reason to not participate or feel like I'm missing out here. We can believe for a moment that the source of the upside in the market has come from this additional liquidity that's come from the spending down of the TGA. There is a harsh reality that we're only at about $60 billion of it. So even in the TGA left, which means that you're kind of nearing the zero lower bound. So it can only go so low. It can't go negative. And the end result would be is that even if you kick it down to September, it's not as if you have – you're going from a trillion dollars in the TGA down to $60 billion. You still have – the you will lose that liquidity as a tailwind, even if you kick the can down the road. So, and then it just means that it could become a market issue in September. People have funding uncertainty. So, I don't. I think the liquidity side of things is sort of an intractable. Whether it ha whether we have an issue with the debt ceiling and it causes a market sharp correction in the short term, or we have a placid debt ceiling and we get past it, the reality is, I think a key driver of this market will start to be a fading tailwind. Doesn't mean that you can't have further upside to stocks. It just has to come from the earnings line. It can't come from the multiple line because multiples are driven by liquidity and they're already at the high end of prior ranges. And given the message that we're hearing from interest rates, probably they're not going to become your friend from a multiple perspective either. So I think that I'm, it's not to say you can't see stocks move higher, but you know, if every name could print a number like like NVIDIA, yeah, sure, the market could go to the moon. Do you get a sense um, from your advisors or your advisors' clients that people are particularly worried about the debt ceiling not getting resolved anytime soon? Because going back to all those measures of of kind of sentiment that you kind of rattled off before, you know, again, the VIX just picked up from like 16 and a half. It got to maybe 20 briefly yesterday. Today, it's kind of a little softer here. It just doesn't seem there's too many people out there who are too worried about a worst case scenario. I think that it's very much a boy who cried wolf kind of response to things, which is that you've done this so many times. How many strategists have you said have you heard come out and say, well, we've raised the debt ceiling some whatever is it 60 times or something like that, and it always happens? And yes, resolution does eventually happen. Uh, it depends, though, is how far close to or beyond the brink do you get in with a resolution, meaning that do you have a government shutdown in the near term, which is very disruptive, um, mostly to Main Street, not to Wall Street necessarily. But then what do you get as far as austerity on the other side? And do you get sweeping budget cuts that have the potential to be a drain on economic growth at the same time as you have a Fed that's still engaged in tightening policy? And I think that would be the key question coming out of all of this is what does the deal look like? If the deal looks like big budget cuts, maybe great for, for deficit hawks, but what does it mean for, for global growth? And thus, what does it mean for, for EPS growth? Here's my biggest problem in this market. When stocks do start to turn lower, and they will inevitably at some point, is the nature of it. And now when I say these stocks, I'm talking about the big boys, you know, the things that have driving the entire market. There's 10 stocks that account for the entire market, basically, on their performance perspective. When they start to drop, what's the incremental buy point? Because it's not from a valuation perspective. It will be, but that's much lower from here. When that momentum starts cascading, 
lower? What does that look like? And are they go back into staples and utilities and all the things that have been underperforming because inevitably the rate cut will happen at some point, maybe be forced because these big stocks start to drop and then it becomes, oh, relative to where yields are going, staples and utilities look good. Is that what's going to happen here? Because I, that's- It's yeah, been quietly happening under the surface. If you look interest sectors, you can see signs of a bid towards defensives instead of cyclicals. My favorite personal one as a former industrials person is machinery has been underperforming waste stocks. So within a cyclical industrial sector, the fact that you have machinery names, as we talked earlier, you're going down on good earnings, waste stocks doing better, that tells you that there's already starting to be a bid for those defensives underneath the surface of this market. I think the other way to frame this is that if we look at the downside that we hit from a valuation perspective in June and October of last year, we bottomed each time at around 15 and a half times earnings. Right now, we're trading at 18.7 times earnings. So to your point, there's a big difference between those two. Do we triple bottom in valuations? Uh, I don't know. I think it depends on the degree and the magnitude of the recession. If it's a slight recession and you have the Fed step in fairly quickly and stabilize things, you don't have to go back to those valuation levels. But if you have the Fed be a bit trigger shy and say, oh, no, 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 we're not coming in to bail you out and save the day, then I think going back to the valuation levels we saw last year is, is very much possible. The last part of it is that it does that means that we don't go to those dire, dire valuation levels that you saw back in 08, 09, of course, as well as even the lows that you saw in 16, 2018, 2020. Uh, it's maybe a higher base and you, know, you can satiate the people who say, well, it's just index constitution is different. So that's how we can justify it. Well, it's interesting. And the index constitution, you just mentioned that we bottomed in October at 15 or so times. And if you look at just kind of the equal eight S&P, it bottomed lower than that. It bottomed at the sort of multiple that you would expect to, to have, right, at a cyclical downturn like that. So I think that's really important. But I guess where we get caught up in, you know, we track our, our main man, John Butters, over there at FactSet Earnings Insight Blog, his work. And, you know, he's saying the S&P right here at 18 and a half or wherever it is, is, you know, it is – basically in line with the five-year average, and it's slightly above the 10-year average, about 17.3. But then you go and look, and you see where the average 10-year yield has been over that 10- or five-year period, and that makes no sense. And that five-year average also has two years of being in a bubble yeah. in it. And, and I still hold that the 2020-2021 period was a bubble. And from a broad market valuation standpoint, because the last time you saw valuations on a next 12-month forward basis go into that 20 to 23 times, which is where we traded in the S&P 500 on a next 12 months forward, the only other time we did that was during the 1920s bubble and during the tech bubble. And this time around, we had a huge liquidity boost. You were growing the balance sheet by $4.5 trillion. You were having real interest rates at negative 1%, as, as we talked about. You had money supply growing at 25%. That's how you get to 20 to 21 times on that basis. So when we think about anchoring to those levels – Sure, we can go back up to those levels, but I have to count on having liquidity be that abundant to justify me trading there. And that's where I struggle in just anchoring to the five-year average because it's you're including a bubble. I think about it a little bit differently. I think about the out years. I think about if, okay, who cares where it's trading today? But if two years from now, 
what are their earnings going to look like 18 months from now? What are they going to look like? And I think if that's not the case and I'm wrong, Fed's going to 6%, six and a quarter, six and a half, because in order for earnings to grow, the economy has to be humming still. And if the economy's humming, Fed's not going to be coming and cutting rates. It's not going to happen. And we're going to continue with QT and we're going to continue with all this. And I just, it doesn't matter right now. I guess my level of frustration has been in the three times you've been here each time. I, and that goes back to last year. I thought, here we go. We're right at the, no, seriously. And, <laughs> I'm like and, Tippy Hedren from the no, birds, no, no. you know, wherever I no, go. The but I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm in the same camp you are. I'm like, but the next time we see you, we're going to be talking about, oh, see, you know, no, but I'm, but in, again, and, and I think people paint us. And when I say us guy, who's, you know, who's with us and I'll paint you and, and Dan, it, it's not being bearish. It's being a realist and try to being realist. It just comes across as bear because that's what the market's giving us right now. And yeah, I'll miss out on all of this. I'll miss out on the chase. I'm, I'm willing to miss out on it because I'm not going to be the craps table and spread out on four, five, six, eight, nine, ten. Pass line combats all over the place, full odds and go out. I'm taking, I'm taking them down right now off the four, off the six, off. I'm taking things off right now and I'll live with that. You know why? Because I can go get 5% risk-free basically right now. And that's the part to me where I see this background to the point you guys just made about where are yields versus that risk-free basic return. If it is risk-free, that's what makes no sense to me is that. I wonder if the answer to all of this problem is is maybe to keep a phrase in mind. So I, I'm from Orlando and there used to be a liquor store near my house that would say, lower your standards for more options, which was great advice. Great. Yeah. Um, it was good to think it doesn't say that when you're walking out the door. No, okay, good. no. Right, okay. So, but but I, think, I think maybe the phrase that we should keep in our mind is shorten your timeframes for more options, meaning that markets can trade on momentum and positioning and FOMO in short timeframes, but it's not enough to sustain breakouts. And I think that what you do is you keep that valuation discipline, you keep that earnings discipline in the in the back of your mind, knowing that, hey, trends might be strong right now. Um, and if I trade up above, you know, we saw NASDAQ peak back in 21, I think it was 18, 19% when it traded above its 200 day moving average. 18, 19% or times? 18, 19% above its above. 200, oh, okay, gotcha. above its 200 days. So it just, it gets extended versus yeah. trend. Maybe that's some time to lighten up. And so I think that if we think about shortening our time frames, then you're in this period that might defy reality, but, and you can participate, but knowing that you have a negative volatility alert, you probably should pay very close mind to that. All right. Three times a charm here, Danny. I yeah. think so. Camera- I think the fourth time is going to be well, the charm. Well, fourth uh-huh. time is going to be, hopefully, right. like, you and I will be right by then. Right. Um, how's that? Um, no, but <laughs> How I much think- you want to bet the market's still going to be at 4,100? Oh, exactly. <laughs> I think it's been yeah. at 4,100. Yeah. killing right. us here right. um, a little bit. I mean, listen, you know, I, like, here's one of the things that's kind of interesting, and I'll just end with this, is, like, you know, I- I'm bearish um, because, to your point about what I see in front of me, right, and the market's oftentimes don't make a whole heck of a lot of a sense. And I'm not wishing for worst case scenarios. I don't want to get my retracement down to 3,600 in the S&P 500 because we can't do the things that our elected officials are supposed to do, like raise a debt limit and come up with sensible budget, you know, negotiations and all that sort of stuff. I just want like a little realism to work into the market about all the things that you've succinctly laid out here is like, there are a lot of headwinds and it does seem like with a $220 consensus for S&P earnings right now, that doesn't seem 
particularly realistic in this rate environment, especially with what we're seeing as far as the headwinds to growth. So I guess take us out with Cameron a little bit, like what could go right here? You know what I mean? Because we spend a lot of time trying to pick at what we think is a universal bullish consensus, but what could go right where, and maybe it is a soft landing scenario where, you know, a recession is, <laughs> Danny's like, I don't even know. I, I can't I wait know. to hear the answer. Yeah, no, well, I want to know. What, what could go yeah. right? So I think what would have to go right, the first step is that the market would still have to ignore interest rates. I think that's step number one, because what step number two is, is in order for earnings to reaccelerate and grow well, you need to see higher inflation. Inflation is very, very good for corporate earnings because corporate earnings are nominal. So nominal, meaning that it's not a real number. It, it, it benefits from inflation. And when inflation is high, it, give comp it gives companies pricing power. That was the source of the earnings beat this quarter. If you look at consumer names, they go, oh, yeah, we still raise price and consumers accepted it because inflation's still high. So if you saw inflation stay high, that drives strong top line growth, that drives strong incremental margins, and that would then allow you to have margins rebound back up to those pandemic level highs, which I think they were over earning because of inflation and because of pricing power. But if you have inflation coming back, then that can continue. I would say, though, the caveat and catch in all of this is that at $243 a share baked in for 2024, you already have margins going back up to those pandemic level valuations. So to your point, Danny, is that there is potential that because of the over-earning in this inflation dynamic, if it really does abate, if inflation slows, then you could see earnings kind of flattish and sort of just grow into the reality that they over-earned during the, the COVID era and that pricing power is going to go back to the time of kind of the great stagnation. So I that's the bull case. Higher inflation drives higher earnings growth, but it requires then that the market continues to ignore interest rates because that's the scenario where the Fed stays very tight and continues to raise rates. All right. Well, as we kick off Memorial Day, have a great summer. We will see you probably here right after Labor Day. We'll talk about the summer. We'll talk about where the market was. I have a feeling the fourth time's a charm. This time we'll be coming back with a look back and see what happened here, which I think, unfortunately, for a lot of people, I think you're going to be correct. But we'll see what happens. But, Cameron, thanks for coming on. Thank really you appreciate so much. It. My only goal for the summer is to be tanner than all three of you. That might be tough in my case. Well, but, you, yeah. You, yeah, you better yeah. lower your expectations <laughs> if that's what you're doing. All right. All right, Cameron Dawson, thanks for coming back. Thank you. When we come back, a snippet of our conversation with premier lacrosse player Stephen Rafis. Stephen Rafe has joined the Risk Versal Media team, what, close to two years ago, Stephen? In the fall of 21. Stephen is a proud graduate of Syracuse University, sure. which is a university that's near and dear to my heart the way Georgetown University is near and dear to your heart. That would be true. And Syracuse, of course, one of the great lacrosse schools in the United States, Jim Brown, who recently passed away. Some say Jim Brown was a better lacrosse yeah. player. Then he was a football player. We'll let Stephen talk about that, but Stephen Rafis is here. You're listening to this right now in the audio format. Okay, we're also going to extend it. We're going to do a longer bit. It's going to go on our YouTube. That's the Risk Versal Media YouTube channel. We got two games on Saturday. They're in Philadelphia. What are they? Who are we expecting here? And let's get into it, man. Yeah, so Final Four is coming up at Lincoln Financial Field in Philly. First games are on Saturday. The first one's at noon. That's going to be between 
Duke and Penn State. Duke is the one seed in the tournament, and Penn State is the five seed in the tournament. Followed by that will be UVA versus Notre Dame at 2.30. So we have three ACC teams and one Big Ten team. Last year, the ACC was slighted by the NCAA committee, and only one team was in the tournament. Slighted. They were. Slighted. I like that. So Notre Dame came on really strong at the end of last year. Their program has come a long way. No, they have. But, I mean, this is a team that I I think their first Final Four might have been in 2000, 2001. And since they've really been a mainstay, like Mm -hmm. in the top, right, like the the top five of the Division One. Last year they were coming on really hard. They did not make it into the NCAA tournament, let alone let some people think that they would have been there on the Final Four. Yeah, I think they definitely would have been on the Final Four and probably in the national championship game. They they were the next best team after Maryland last year come May, so everyone was looking forward to that game. But Five or six teams it. from the Ivies made it into the NCAA tournament. How many of them made it into the Final Four last year? I believe Cornell and Princeton right. made it along with Rutgers. I look at these games, and Duke, to me, is the best team in the country. I think they were number one ranked going in. They're playing a Penn State team. You know what? Good for them for being there, but this is a step up in class. This is like in horse racing where all of a sudden you go and step up in class and then you start to separate the wheat from the chaff. Are we going to separate the wheat from the chaff in the form of Duke just sort of running rampshod over the Nittany Lions of Penn State? Yeah, so, I mean, Penn State, they are a good team. If, if you make it this far, you're definitely good. And a lot of these older guys, they made the Final Four in 2019. Uh, they had a very talented team that year, so so they've been there. Um, but Duke, obviously, they're the number one team right now. They have some of the best players in the country, probably spearheaded by the best player in the country in Brendan O'Neill. Uh, he's a junior attackman. So Penn State's coming in at 11-4. and four. Duke's coming in at 15-2. and two. Um, Penn State, they... Um, have not played an ACC team yet this year, so that'll be interesting to see. Duke's first Big Ten matchup was against Michigan, which is in the quarterfinals last weekend, which they won 15-8. to um, Duke also missed the tournament last year, so they were kind of the team right behind Notre Dame, and their last Final Four appearance was in 2021, so their guys have also been to the Final Four. So I think the players to watch here are going to be Brendan O'Neill at attack, Andrew McAdory is also at attack, and then Jake Naso, he's really come along. He's their FOGO. He's first team. Hold on a second. Right I know what that is. FOGO for you listening <laughs> yes. for the first time. to That would be face-off, go-off. In other words, your only job is yeah. to win a face-off, and then once you win, you hightail it off the field. It's one of the most ridiculous things I've seen in sports, but apparently it's a thing in lacrosse. For the balance of our conversation with Stephen Rafis, go to the Risk Reversal Media YouTube channel. You can watch the whole thing. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.